there is a big difference between what you intend to say and how it is perceived especially as a leader i call it the intent perception gap right you intend to say something a certain way and how somebody picks up uh, on it is going to be very very different this episode is sponsored by linear b accelerate your development pipeline with data driven engineering metrics continuous improvement automation and project visibility while cutting your software development cycle time in half Sign up for your free demo at LinearB.io and mention the Dev Interrupted podcast discount for one month free when you sign up for an annual pro membership. Welcome to Dev Interrupted. This is Connor Bronsden. I am Dev Interrupted's executive producer, and I'm here filling in for Dan Lyons as host today. I'm here with Shankar Ramaswamy. He is the head of engineering at Datastax and a former VP of engineering and also senior director of engineering at Google. He's had a million titles, a very storied career. And we're really honored to have him here today in the Dev Interrupted community to talk about what he's done, what he's working on at Datastax and much more. Shankar, thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thank you, Connor, for having me. Glad to be here. Awesome. I'd love to get to know you a bit better and talk a bit about your career. I really want to dig into data stacks too, but let's give our audience a chance to get to know you. Like I said, you've previously been a senior director of engineering at Google. You were VP of product management, and you also led the engineering team at Apogee, which was acquired by Google. You're previously a director of engineering at PayPal and a product management at eBay. Walk us through your career a bit. How did you get started in engineering and then make your way to where you are today as a very successful engineering leader? Thank you. Yeah. So I started my my career in engineering quite accidentally, right? I was not uh, super engaged when I was in school. Um, you know, most most of the stuff wasn't very interesting. And then when I got to college, I happened to read my my textbook in electronics, <laughs> and I just fell in love with electronics and uh, hardware and all of that stuff. And then continued to study. And got a PhD, and at that point, I switched over to the software side of things. And so, really, really love technology and love being in technology. And then, uh, as a technologist, the first half of my career, I got to do a little bit of individual contribution, also did a little bit of entrepreneurial work. And then, the second half of my career, I did product management for a few years, right? And that gave me a great insight into how to think about products and the value and customers and all of that stuff. And then decided that finally I wanted to be in engineering leadership. So I've spent the last decade as an engineering leader. So the first 10 years was individual contributor, then about five years as a product management person and leader, and then engineering leader for the last decade. If I recall correctly, the product management, you were doing that as a director at eBay, right? And then you transitioned yes, exactly. to engineering at PayPal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So how did that transition come about? You decided you wanted to go full into engineering leadership. You already had these skills as a leader and you said, hey, let me go do this here. Or, or what, what happened there? I realized that as a product manager, while I had a lot of the experience of thinking about customers and value and, and, and experience and all of those things, um, I felt like I could bring that thinking and be more effective hmm. on the engineering side of the house, right? Uh, where I felt like a lot of times when I was working with my engineering partners, there wasn't that appreciation, right? And I felt like, hey, if I came into engineering and could influence the hearts and minds of engineers, then uh, with product thinking and you know appreciation for customers and so on, that could be really powerful. 
right? And so that's kind of why what I've been doing over the last decade is, you know, trying to get engineers to really appreciate and develop that product thinking. And then also being a good partner for my product management uh, colleagues, right? And enabling them better, right? So, so that's kind of, I felt like that could be the spot where I could make the most impact and being just in product management. It certainly seems like you're making that impact. I mean, you've worked for some massive organizations. You've helped lead teams that go to acquisitions. You're obviously doing incredible stuff at Datastacks now. I'd love to know a bit about that experience of working at these major like headline corporations. You know, you were at PayPal, then you went to Apogee and then Google. How did the experience and the culture at PayPal compare to Google? Are there like pros and cons of both? Yeah, I think um, looking at all these large companies, I think they all tend to have, you know, some center, right? Something that has made them successful. You see that, you know, show in in the way everything happens. So, for example, IBM, you know, had this long history of being a very reliable partner for enterprises. And so that was kind of the center was, hey, we never let our customers down. We do everything we can, you know, to to meet their needs and so on and so forth. And every customer is special and unique, right? So that yes. was kind of the big, big thinking there. Amazon was actually very customer centric, but looking at it more from large scale, right? How do you sort of scale customer centricity, right? And and how do you, you know, have millions and millions of happy customers, right? So so that was very fascinating to see. Uh, and really customer obsessed, actually. I would say you know, people people at Amazon were super uh, customer obsessed. That's the only place I've seen where junior engineers were sort of, you know, having arguments in the hallway about what would be the better thing for customers, right? Which I've never seen. Amazing, yeah. And then getting to eBay and PayPal, it was all kind of one big happy family at that point. The the split had not happened. Um, I think eBay was going through a little bit of a renovation at that point, right? They'd gone through their early success and then they'd gone through a little bit of a, a downer and you know, lost ground to Amazon and so on. So there was a little bit of revival going on. So it was an interesting mix of cultures. Uh, I think they'd also been more like an IT shop and then they decided they wanted to be a tech company, right? right. So there was, there was some of that going on as well. Uh, so certainly it was a, I would say there was a, there was a transition going on at eBay when I was there. And then getting to Apogee, of course, was a startup, right? Classic, uh, you know, small uh, few hundred people and, you know, high energy, high momentum kind of thing. And then getting to Google, it was actually interesting to see the obsession with scale and the scale that, that you have at Google. There's maybe two, three places that have that kind of scale and so many different properties with very large scale, right? So the, the scale was, was just massive. And then the culture was really a very collaborative, very friendly kind of culture, right? Got to meet some really, really amazing people who've done things that we all talk about, right. but you meet them in the hallway or you meet them in a, in a meeting and they're like super humble down to earth, right? Uh, kind of people. So that was, uh, that was very fascinating. That's fantastic. I'd love to dig into Apogee a bit more because I think it sets the tone for your next steps, right? Going to Google for several years and then now to Datastacks. So Apogee, you joined, you were the VP of product management and you led, led the engineering organization. How many people were you managing at that point? So I did two stints at Apogee. I did okay. a stint and then I went in between, I took a five-year detour to Amazon and eBay and all that and came back. So I was VP of product management initially. 
And then when I came back, I became the VP of engineering. So I did that for about five, six years, right, um, before before moving on to Google Maps. Led the led the thing through like a pre-IPO stage, right? So about a year and a half or so before we went IPO. And then for about a year and a half, we were public. And then for a couple of years, we were a little over two years uh, integrating Apogee into, into Google. It was, it was actually very interesting, right? Each of those phases were quite different, right? We were sort of preparing to go be in the limelight and get to be a well-oiled machine, right? Because once right. you're a publicly traded company, you have to kind of be well-oiled. So that was the, the, the first phase. And then once we became public, then it was just, you know, being consistent, delivering right uh, quarter after quarter and making sure that you don't miss your your plans and that kind of thing and then uh, we got an offer to get bought and once we got the first offer as a publicly traded company you then have to go through like a process of shopping yourself around and getting the right. best offer and so on so going being part of that process was pretty fascinating for me personally so during this period i would say the team was when I started, we were about 150 people or something, and then we grew all the way to about 275, 300. Fantastic. You know, at the point that I left uh, Google. Right. And for those who may be listening and maybe don't know what Apogee is, can you give them a bit of a breakdown of what the, the product was and what you were working on? It was a API management product, right? So what it did was it actually sat between the consumer of the API and the provider of the API and enforced a set of concerns, right, for both sides, right? So security concerns, um, things like rate li- traffic management, right, rate limits, quotas, those kinds gotcha. of things. Uh, and then um, also did monetization, right? So if someone wanted to monetize their API, we could help them with that. We did analytics. We did uh, a little bit of detecting, you know, security type threats and all of that stuff. So really uh, um, an API management product. Gotcha. And you went through several stages, like you mentioned with Apogee, you know, preparing for the IPO, the IPO stage, growth, acquisition, internal at Google and, and how that adjusted. What were some of the lessons you learned from those different experiences about how to be a successful engineering leader and to manage your organization? I think the biggest thing that I learned and I, I was growing during that period as an engineering leader as well, because when at the point that I took on the role, I had really managed a very large team, right? So I would say the one thing that I've learned through the years is just to not avoid difficult conversations. I think we all know when we need to have a hard conversation and generally that's not something we like doing. And so we tend to put it off or avoid it, right? Uh, and, And that always comes back and bites you. You've got to you know, make sure that you figure out how to have the hard conversations early, right? And so really get comfortable with that and get comfortable with having difficult conversations and develop your own techniques and so on. That That's one thing. And then the second thing I would say is just listen very carefully to your team, right? I think your job as a leader is not to actually solve every problem, but to identify the problems that need to be solved and then, you know, figure out where the best solutions are, right? And all of those things, the the problems that need to be solved are also going to come from your team. The solutions are going to come from your team, right? So your job is really to pick up all that signal, synthesize and make sure, you know, the right things get done. And then another one that often we ignore is there is a big 
difference between what you intend to say and how it is perceived. Especially as a leader, the difference, I call it the intent perception gap, right? You intend to say something a certain way and how somebody picks up uh, on it is going to be very, very different. So I'll give you an example. I used to walk around uh, the hallways and engage in conversations with folks on the team. My intent was just to connect and have a chat and have a technical brainstorm or something on a topic, right? And so my intent was to learn a bit more about what they were doing and what Mm -hmm. they're working on, but also just chime in with some ideas and things of that nature. What I didn't realize is when I would throw out an idea or throw out a proposal, they took it as a, hey, Shankar wants me to change what I'm doing and do it differently, right? And so here it is. Here's a great example of an intent perception gap, right? I'm intending something, but the way it's coming across to the people uh, that I'm talking to is very different, right? And so that is something that you have to be very mindful of as a leader, right? Uh, mm-hmm. is, is when you say something, it is perceived very, very differently by different people. We had Brendan Burns on the podcast a couple months ago. He's Kubernetes co-founder, Microsoft CDP. Uh, leads a very large organization at Microsoft. And he talked about this same thing. He said, as he started to grow his team, to really realize the impact of the, that like elevator conversation. Saying, oh, that's an interesting idea. And you know, three months later, this person comes back and like, I built an MVP and I've spent all this time on it. And, uh, so it sounds like you've experienced exactly. that Exactly, exactly, exactly. So everything, right? And that's just one example, right? But totally. every word you say right, is perceived a certain way. So There's weight to it and... I think it's it's really wonderful to hear that both of you are thinking about it so deeply because the impact that we have is really important to understand. And I think that goes in line with what you said previously around listening too, because that's also kind of part and parcel with this, where if you're not listening to your team and understanding what's going on and trying to unblock them, it's really easy to not just you know let intent perception gap be an issue where you may say one thing and they perceive something else but to also fail to understand what's going on there, which leads to even more of that gap, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm curious, how has this transition to a a hybrid or remote world impacted your ability to uh, do that listening? How have you had to adapt uh, your strategies and and make sure that you're not falling prey to the intent perception gap? Yeah, no, no, no. Actually, that's that's a great question. Because actually, one of the things we all may or may not know is uh, a lot of our communication is actually nonverbal. And when you're in a physical space, the nonverbal cues are much easier to pick up, right? Because totally. you can you can see what's going on, body language, and so on and so forth. Even you know the thing that you can see in a hallway that somebody who's normally very cheerful, very happy is kind of walking around in a droopy, you know, yeah. uh, sulky manner, right? And you know something's up, right? So those are the things that I would say I miss the most. And so one of the things I've been trying to train myself is in Zoom meetings and things like that is to see how I can try and make up. So I, I try to consciously observe what's going on with people and uh, their facial expressions and things of that nature to try and see if I can kind of glean what's going on and, and try and compensate for some of that. Uh, and then also I've been checking in on people a bit more, right, just to see how they're tone is and how their response is and so on. Right? So just trying to 
develop some coping mechanisms. Another thing that I've been doing is having more organized, just ask me anything kind of conversations, right? Open-ended, ask me anything conversations. So my ABP is kind of set a schedule where every week I end up meeting a couple of groups for Love about that. 30 minutes. And all we're doing is just saying, hey, what's on your mind? What, what questions do you have? What would you like to talk about? That kind of thing, right? Just open-ended, no agenda, right? Nothing. And that's actually helped as well, right? So just, just trying to, you know, figure out other mechanisms to get that signal. I appreciate the intentionality of that. We had Darren Murph on for an event talking about remote work. He's, you know, the head of remote at GitLab. And he talked a lot about that, about how it's not that we we do lose that kind of synchronicity of these like hallway conversations that, you know, you, you run into someone getting a coffee or you're walking around and you go pop your head in somewhere. And so because of that, we have to be more thoughtful about the interactions we're having. And I like that you're doing it not only in like how you evaluate and consider and like, like think about the interpersonal relationship of each meeting, but also saying, Hey, I need to check in more. You know, there's definitely been, I think a phenomenon of people saying, Oh, I'm fine. I'm, I'm keeping it together. Things are, things are all good. But we're also all dealing with things at home that maybe we aren't going to show in in a right. you know a, a casual Zoom chat or won't come through in a Slack conversation. Yeah. Uh, and without those those cues that you mentioned, it's harder to do that. And you have to be much more thoughtful about how am I tracking my team health and how am I tracking burnout? How am yeah. I making sure that everyone's getting the support they need or the resources or the knowledge? And I think the AMAs are probably a great way to do that too to build trust and also exchange info. Exactly, exactly. And then, you know, I have partners as well. So, for example, I'm my HR partner, right? And I tell them as well, hey, can you check in as well? So, so that yeah. way we have, you know, multiple people checking in on others and, and getting signal on, on what's going on, right? Yeah. I do want to really dig into data stacks and, and what you're doing, because I think the, the way you're thinking about everything is, is fantastic. Can you tell us a bit more about data stacks and make sure our listeners know what it is you're doing there? Yeah. So at DataStax, we are looking to build an open data stack for modern apps. And so we've been involved with Cassandra for a long time, and yeah. we've had a product based on Cassandra as well in the market for a while. Recently, we also started to productize Pulsar, Apache Pulsar as well. So Pulsar and Cassandra are both both projects that, that we participate in and we productized. And then what we're looking to do is also to integrate these things, right? So if you look at modern data apps, they use a lot of different data systems and data services, and they're somewhat disjoint and they have to put things together or move data around and so on and so forth. So our thinking is, can we make that simpler? Can we give right. developers you know, access to some of the data services that they need? How do we sort of bring it together, single API, uh, single way of accessing things so that they don't have to worry about a lot of these things? So something I was really curious to hear from you, given the work DataStax is doing in cloud computing and your experience in the field, where do you see cloud computing going over the next five, 10 years as we continue to use this distributed workflow model? I think that if you look at it, the heart of cloud computing is you're essentially taking away um, a lot of operational headaches from folks. Uh, especially around infrastructure and other things, right? And you're freeing up more and more cycles for innovation, right? Otherwise, people were probably spending a lot of their money and time trying to keep things up and running. Say, for example, we take a simple thing, right? Let's say you wanted some logging and, and metrics for observability, right? 
earlier you would go figure out how to run your own logging thing, your metrics thing, right? You probably need a few people just to keep that up and running. Totally. Today, you don't even think about it, right? You just go and get some SaaS offering for logging and something for metrics and, and you're done, right? So what that means is now you've freed up a bunch of, you know, your budget and your bandwidth and you can invest that in in more and more innovation, right? So I think we're going to see more and more innovation. And I think the rate and pace at which you see things come out in the cloud is also going to keep increasing, right? Because now all that is going to show up as a service as well, right? right. So I think you're going to see more and more SaaS services and interesting services come up because there's so much more bandwidth available for innovation. I think there's still some challenges when it comes to the cloud around things like cost management, security, all of those things, right? So I think seeing more perhaps integrated platforms where some of those things are taken care of and it's very easy for you to sort of build in a way that, you know, you know the cost, you know, the security is good. All of that stuff is definitely, I think, also something we'll see more of. More platforms, right, rather than just individual primitives that you sort of stitch together. So I think that's another area. And then generally, I would say multi-cloud is, I think, going to become more and more important because, honestly, if people haven't learned from the past, single vendor strategies are not that great. I know today single vendor strategies produce you know deep discounts and those kinds of things, but I do feel like uh, it's somewhat irresponsible if you're all in on just one vendor, right? I, th- I think having a multi-cloud strategy is going to become important. And there's some great technology showing up there as well, right? That That's starting to really Kubernetes is, you know, sort of foundational. Some of the work we are doing at Datastax is in that direction. So there's a lot of interesting stuff happening and multi-cloud is going to become more and more interesting. So more of the full, like, whether for availability or for cost or whatever reasons, right, competition, being able to shift quickly back and forth and do things would be, I think, where we would go with that. Fantastic. I was talking to somebody on a podcast. They talked about swivel chair engineering and how it's become this norm where, you know, we're going from, from one thing to another, one data source to this other dashboard to you know, inputting code here to tracking what's happening in Jira. And all these tools on their own are really helpful, but the confluence of them all, unless it's well-managed, like what you're doing with data stacks can be really negative for the process and bog things down. Exactly. So we're trying to see if we can, you know, with the world of Kubernetes and multi-cloud and all of these things, you, you need your data to be everywhere, right? So we are um, in the process of supporting that kind of distribution and providing more Kubernetes. We, we have a serverless database that's all based on Kubernetes Fantastic. now, right? So, so we're really trying to embrace the needs of modern applications and figure out how to solve their data problems. So how big is your team now at Datastax? It's, uh, it's about a couple of hundred people. And how are you organizing it? Do you have two different organizations that you're funneling everything into? Uh, is it like small distributed teams? How is it set up? I actually believe in, I've used this framework for a long time. I, I have these three core principles along, around which I organize. They're um, accountability, autonomy, alignment. The idea is that everyone should know, every individual team should know what they're accountable for, right, in terms of the customer or business problems that they're solving. And then they need to have the autonomy to be able to make the decisions they think are the best decision to solve those problems, right? So you make them accountable, give them the autonomy, right? 
But autonomy without alignment is chaos. And so that's where alignment comes in. And so alignment is about ensuring that as you have all these teams autonomously going off and making decisions, that they are consistent and coherent with each other. So I tend to set things up where I've got teams and individuals, you know, their charter is spelt out, right? And they say, hey, this is your charter. You go figure this out. So I spend a lot of time working with them, writing things down and really clearly spelling out the charter. And then I let them, you know, do their thing, right? And then I focus a lot of my attention on the uh, alignment piece. So setting up the charter gives them accountability, giving them the space to execute, and also, you know, letting them know that it's okay to fail, right? It's fine. Uh, we'll just learn from failure. That gives them the autonomy to go and do do what they need to do. And then I spend a lot of my time on alignment. And um, the way I like to think about alignment is you want low-cost alignment, right? Like we could all be sitting in the same room all day and discussing everything, uh, and we'll be perfectly aligned, but we won't get anything done. So the question is, how do you sort of have, you know, that alignment be at a low cost? And that's where I, I figure out what sort of processes and rhythms and information exchange and other things that we need to have to keep that going with the minimal cost for all involved. And that high degree of ownership you're giving your teams with the autonomy, that really, I'm sure, resonates with them around feeling like they're making an impact with their work and having Absolutely. the opportunity to like try things, as you point out, and, and to fail when needed. Absolutely. And grow, right? Um, so totally. I also look for, you know, how can I stretch people, give them something that they've not done before and so on and so forth, so that they can also feel like they're they're developing, right? We all, at the end of the day, all of us want want to, you know, take on new challenges. Absolutely. We get, we get uh, bored with what we've been doing all the time. So you mentioned processes to maintain and build this alignment. What kind of processes are you putting in place? So, for example, we have, you know, a set of regular heartbeat meetings, right, every week. And each of them is designed to give us alignment on something. So, for example, we have an all hands every week. And that all hands is to uh, align the broader team on what's going on, how are we doing, right? What's this team working on, that kind of thing. And then we have a review of all our initiatives every week to see if anything's changed. Hey, this thing's, you know, now gone red. Okay, we all know it's gone red. What's the impact, right? Or this thing's coming in, new initiative coming in, that kind of thing, right? And then we also align on the details, right? So we have everybody looking at all the PRDs and designs and mocks and all of that so that everybody understands like, oh, hey, this is this thing is getting built. So, for example, the security team can say, hey, have you thought about the security issues of this thing, right? Or the support team can say, hey, how are you going to get us up to speed on this particular feature or whatever, right? So those kinds of things are one mechanism, right? So we have basically this regular cadence so that everybody is all the time looking at all of this. It takes about maybe, you know, a couple of hours a week. So about 5% of everyone's time. But the idea is that you're all very up to date on everything that's happening. That's material. Are there engineering metrics you're tracking for your teams to help identify which teams maybe need help or have blockers? On that particular front, I haven't really come across very good metrics that help with that kind of thing. In the past, I've used metrics like 
the turnaround time for tickets and things like that, right? So like an 80th percentile turnaround for a P1 or a P2 or a P3, yeah. just to see where that is, right? So we understand how, how things are going to understand our velocity. But I do tend to use a lot of metrics around the customer experience, right? So what sort of quality okay. are we delivering? What sort of availability and reliability are we delivering, right? Performance, you know, things that, that would be material to our customers, right? Yeah, we recently did research around pull requests context. You know, I work for Dev Interrupted and also my, our parent company, Linear B, tracks engineering metrics and tries to help better align teams. And one of the things that we found in our pull request research was that 50% of PRs are like sitting idle for half of their lifespan. And so I think there's definitely opportunities for that kind of alignment that you mentioned to mm-hmm. help improve that velocity because. Oh, nice. Like you're saying, by teams understanding what's going on, hopefully they're going to align more with their coworkers. And there's a lot of ways to go about that. We we definitely see that a, a similar issue when there is a lack of alignment on teams and across teams where idle time, whether it's like distraction time, you know, when you pick something up and you go to something else or like transition time during handoff uh, can definitely drive problems. Oh, interesting. No, that's uh, that's good to know. Good to know. I should certainly dig in more and learn. It's a, it's an interesting space. I think there's going to be, particularly with distributed work, there's been a lot more emphasis, I think, on how can we track what's going on? Because as you pointed out earlier, we have less of that like day-to-day information. So I yeah. think there's an exciting space evolving now around taking that and diving deeper. And there's going to be hopefully a lot of incredible stuff coming out. I don't want to like pitch us too much, but I think there's a lot of cool stuff out there. So I'm really curious, your teams are distributed. They're you know mostly working at home remotely. Are you hiring across the world? Is your team mostly in, in the North America? Where, where is everyone? Actually, we are hiring across the world. I believe we have people in about 30 different countries, right? Wow. So yeah, we, we're, we're, we're all over already. So I would say a lot of our folks are in the Americas and Europe, but we're slowly starting to also have a bunch of folks in APAC. We already have a team in uh, Australia and we're now slowly starting to hire in India and, and we have some people in Singapore and other places as well. So yeah, it's just uh, truly distributed. So there are two more questions I want to ask that are ones we try to ask every guest. One is, what was a mistake you've made as a leader that you had to overcome, and what did you learn from it? One of the mistakes that I made early on was not delegating enough. And I think it's it's one of those things, right? See, you're almost trained, you're good at problem solving, which is why you get these opportunities to lead, right? And then uh, it's it's a muscle that you have, right? You have a lot of the, the, the problem-solving instinct. And then you become a leader and you tend to continue in that mode, right? Where you Hard see a problem go. and you the first instinct is, hey, let me go solve this, right? And I think the thing that even now, right, sometimes I make that mistake, right? And, and, and I literally have to step back and say, no. Should I be the one doing this or is there somebody else that I can give this to, right? Right. Uh, And so there's certainly things that I have to put my attention and get into the details. But a lot of the times, either there's someone better suited to do it, right, than me, or it's a great opportunity for someone to learn and and do something different. So I think that is the one thing that I would say is a big mistake that, that I certainly, you know, took me a while to realize that I shouldn't be getting into all these problems myself. It's funny you mentioned that. So we had Hiram Wright and Titus Winters from Google. They're both senior staff engineers there on the podcast earlier in 2021. 
And they talked about this, but they also talked about it from the perspective of how we learn to code. So generally you're going to a coding boot camp, you're, you know, going to university, you're taught to like solve problems on your own. And engineers who then later become engineering leaders are taught to, like you said, be really incredible problem solvers. They're not taught how to pull a team together, how to delegate to others, how to necessarily think in like a collaborative fashion about solving problems and, and using those other best resources. So it can make people really incredible problem solvers, but in some ways we're often training them to not be successful leaders down the line. They have to be retrained. Yes, absolutely. In fact, there is no formal training on people problems, right? We know how to solve technical problems, right? Right. But, you know, solving very large technical problems often involves a lot of people problems as well, right? And and we're not, you know, generally equipped for those kinds of things. Which is why people hopefully listen to this podcast so they get these great <laughs> nuggets of wisdom from you. One last question here. In your mind, what are the keys to your success as an engineering leader? I think one of the things that I do as an engineer is I bring a lot of systems thinking mm-hmm. to, to my leadership as well. And I think that serves me well because I'm always thinking about how do I create a system rather than, you know, depend on just individuals, right? Uh, and so that's something that I think serves me well. And then I would say I've generally over the years learned how to listen more. And mm-hmm. so I think that's, I, I do more and more of that. I'm certainly not where I'd love to be, but I certainly, you know, I'm on that journey and, and much better. And, and so I yeah. think that's, that's also serving me, uh, serving me pretty well. And I'm, I'm also very curious, right? So I love, love to, you know, just learn and, and continue to grow myself. So I would say those are some things that have served me. I definitely hear that in your communication style, even like not just as a listener, but also in the way you communicate. So thank you for bringing all these great nuggets of wisdom. So if someone was interested in working for Datastax and they said, you know, this guy sounds really smart. I like the Shankar guy. I want to go work in his org. Where should they go find the Datastax career page? Definitely on our websites, datastax.com. You can find the career website. And then if you want to reach out to me, it's Shankar, S-H-A-N-K-A-R dot Ramaswamy, R-A-M-A-S-W-A-M-Y at datastax.com. Just drop me a note and I'd be more than happy to talk to you. Fantastic. I do like to give our guests an opportunity here to close out the the conversation with a call to action. What do you want engineering teams and leaders to take away from this conversation? So a couple of things. One is if you're uh, looking for a database for a new app or whatever, do look at Astra, uh, Datastax Astra. We're really proud of it. Our serverless database, we think, represents state-of-the-art database that would serve you well. And then if you're uh, someone that is deeply passionate about distributed systems, cloud computing, Kubernetes, or databases, please come. We're hiring actively, and please reach out and drop me a note or visit our careers page, and we'd be really happy. Or connect with me on LinkedIn. You can easily find me there. Love to talk to you. Fantastic. Definitely check out Datastacks. And I know I'm going to go connect with Shankar. What an interesting conversation. A couple quick reminders for our listeners. If you haven't already rated and reviewed the show on your podcasting app of choice, particularly Apple Podcasts, really crucial to the show and getting discovered. And if you haven't also joined our Discord community, you're missing out on daily conversations with other engineering leaders. It happens all week, and we're excited to ramp that up as we head into our Interact 2.0 conference. 
on April 7th. We'll continue to give you updates in the show, but if you want all the newest information, you got to either sign up for our newsletter with now more than 2,000 people or got to join our Discord community to learn more. So hope you will. We'll have links to all this in the description below. And Shankar, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Carmen. Glad to be here.